All right, today's scripture comes from Acts 17, verses 16 to 34. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both, both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the, their latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walk around and look carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to, going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples, but built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needs anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, and that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Good morning, good morning. Wow, that is a, that's a huge, huge and cool text that we are looking at today. And I want to start our time with this question of, that was asked, or that was uh, said by Mark Laberton. He's the president of Fuller Theological Seminary. It's actually the largest multi-denominational seminary in the world. And he said, what does a life of faithfulness look like when one lives in a world of fear? What does a life of faithfulness look like when you live in a world of fear? He goes on to be asked about the church divisions, the racial 
tensions and the political polarizations of America. And he said, the church is in one of its deepest moments of crisis in its history. Because in the midst of everything that's going on in our world, the American church has failed in its capacity to be able to see and love and serve and engage in ways that actually connect with the world. Which kind of just makes my fear meter go that much higher. Like, oh, man, how am I supposed to do what Paul did? I mean, we've been talking the last few weeks about you know, seeing what Paul saw, feeling what Paul feels, and today we're going to doing what Paul does. And what does Paul do? He goes and he speaks about Jesus and the resurrection to a people that either don't understand or may not even care. Friends, the stakes are high. And we want to be people I want to be a person who normally and naturally brings my faith into every part of my life. So Jesus matters all the time in every place. I think it's astounding that everywhere Paul goes, the message changes just a little bit, but yet the resurrection of the dead is always talked about. And Paul talks about the resurrection of the dead in the marketplace, Okay, remember a few weeks ago we talked about Paul, this follower of Jesus, this church planter, and how he believed that faith in Christ was for every part of his life, so he brought it into every area of his life. He didn't insulate his faith, just putting it in this little religious circle, and then everything that looked religious or Christian, then he put it there, but only kept it there, protected it from everything else. He didn't do that. He also didn't ignore his faith, thinking it was just this thing that he took out on Sundays, but then never ever took it out any other part of his life because it didn't have any power or influence for any other part of his life. See, he went not only into the synagogues or, in our case, the churches to bring his faith, but he also went to the marketplace. And the marketplace wasn't just the place that you shopped for food or shopped for clothes. It was the, the marketplace was really the place that you shopped for everything. Food, fashion, philosophy, religions, ideas, art, music. It was all in this place. And it's a space where a, a huge amount of different kinds of people gathered. And when he went there, he saw idols. Now, I think if you want to understand the, the problems and the trends in whatever field you're in, Music, education, medicine, mental health, business. Got to look for the idols. Under every problem, there's probably an idol. We could talk more about it. But like, you know, idols can be these little or large statues that you can still find in Athens, Greece, if you go there. But they can also be anything that we find worthy of our praise. Anything that we think will give us power or status or significance can be an idol. And you know it's an idol when you start getting it 
and it never quite satisfies. Could be an award or an accolade, could be some, some relationship, but if you have a little bit of it and it's not enough and you need more of it, it's probably an idol. So that's what Paul saw. He sees these idols everywhere. And then what does he feel? He feels outrage and compassion. He has these complex feelings. We talked about he's filled with truth and he's filled with tears. And he's filled with tears because he cares about these people. And if you don't have compassion, if you don't have an ability to sit with someone, enter their pain, not take on their pain, but enter it and be a part of it and, and, and feel it, cry, if you will, people won't know you care. But if that's all you have, you'll never speak the truth. You need the truth. You need this boldness, this courage to say, this isn't right, or that's not okay. Or turn your life around. And if you only have that, you'll never connect with people. It'll just come across as harsh. You're like someone who has a samurai sword in a china shop, and you're just kind of going nuts with it, like a five-year-old boy thinking that it's fun to play with. Someone's going to get hurt. So he has these complex feelings. He sees the idols. He feels this outrage and compassion, and then what does he do? Well, he speaks. He shares about Jesus and the resurrection with these people in a new place, in a new culture. So I want to set the scene. It's, uh, Leanne just read it beautifully. It's Acts 17, uh, starting in verse 19. These these philosophers, these people who might have different um, religious beliefs say, may we know this new teaching that you're presenting. You're bringing strange ideas to our ears and we want to know what they mean. And if you're thinking like Epicurean, Areopagus, and Stoics, oh my, it's just fancy words for uh, the cultural and philosophical influencers of the day in the place they meet. So it's the people who, in our day and age, would be uh, filling up different kinds of magazines, different kinds of newspapers, different kinds of media outlets, and they would have their voices out there. Now, I think it's important to catch that the narrator somewhat subtly adds that all these people do is perpetually talk about the latest ideas. It's like, uh, you know, when you go to whatever grocery store you go to, I'm assuming there's plenty of you that still go to the grocery store. You don't do everything by shipped or Amazon delivers or whatever. But, you know, it's coming less frequent. But when I go to the grocery store and I see those tabloids that have the latest fad or the latest news, and it's like, you gotta, you got to hear this. But the next week it'll be something else. And the next week it'll be something else. They're... they're They're wanting to pursue the latest fads. Do they have a genuine interest in it, or do they just want to not be behind the times? We don't really know. We have to wait and hear about it. We know that Paul is speaking already about Jesus and the resurrection, and they think he's talking about different gods. 
These unfamiliar, unknown gods, plural, like Jesus is one of the gods and resurrection is another one of the gods. So Paul has a deficit into this place. It's, it would be almost like this. Like, imagine that the editors of uh, People Magazine, Cosmo, the Wall Street Journal, and ESPN Magazine invited a Christian artist or speaker or pastor to New York so they could all interview them in a live televised interview. That's about the same kind of stakes. So it's a brand new invitation for Paul in a brand new place with a new people. It's an invitation or an opportunity, but it's also a challenge to say, what does the hope of Jesus and the resurrection look like in a way that captivates and engages a new people and a new culture that he finds himself in? And if you are a follower of Jesus, that is our call. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, I just want you to, to think about what it might mean for people who say they are to do that. Because I'm sure we've all seen or heard someone try to share their faith awkwardly. Or try to share it maybe with a formula. Like first you have to say this, then you have to say this, then you say, it's just, it's uncomfortable or cumbersome. But sharing our faith in ways that captivate and engage is what we're called to do. Jesus says, go and make disciples of all people, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded and never forget, I am always with you. So if you are a follower of Jesus, then it means you don't just go to the church people. It means you go to all the people. And if Jesus is your leader and your savior, then you have every resource you need already. Think about it. You have the Holy Spirit. You have the word of God. You have other believers and you have prayer. Really, you have everything you need. Somehow, Paul has that just burned into his mind. And so he goes into new places and he's able to creatively engage with people, change, almost change the message all the time and yet never change the message. So let's look at it. Because he's, he's up against some cynics, some seekers, and some skeptics. He has no idea if they just want the latest information or if they're actually open to something new and something spiritual and something sacred. And I think, especially as I look at Acts, I, I, I've been around church for a while, and it's easy to give formulas, uh, but I don't think Paul gives a formula here. I think he gives more of a framework. And if you're thinking, oh, a framework sounds way more complicated than a formula. Yeah, you're probably right. But it's also way more effective and modifiable in lots of different situations. So first, we've got to see and feel what Paul feels in this new culture, and then we have to think about it with some focused attention and the Holy Spirit, and then we have to just look at what Paul does. Paul looks for what he can complement in the culture. What is it that I can affirm in this culture? Where do I see that maybe their hearts are already going towards God? In other words, like, what is their experience that's pointing them 
to God. Where can I compliment? Where can I affirm? Where can I find a common ground with them? He starts out like with this just undeniable love for Jesus. And he has this love for people. And, and because he loved Jesus, he affirms what Jesus says. And Jesus comes from this Jewish faith that says there is one and only one God. It's the, like, the number one thing for people in his little religion. And he's in a place where people worship all kinds of gods. And somehow he finds a way to find some common ground. He says, people of Athens, I see that you in every way are very religious. I think he's going out of his way to find some common ground. And when you are trying to reach out to someone with the good news of Jesus, you got to you got to find something. And, but we also have to look for, not what can I compliment, but what is there a critique of? What is the Holy Spirit asking me to critique? Now, this is different than what do I dislike or what do I find odd or confusing or repulsive? Not that. A better question is, what is something that these people are doing or saying that actually contradicts how I think God has revealed the truth? Where are the contradictions? That's, that's what Paul does, I think, when he says, I looked carefully at your objects of worship and I find this altar to an un." known God. Remember, this is a culture that proclaims knowledge as king, knowledge as the, one of its highest values. And here they're, they're saying, point blank, we don't know this God. He's just gently pointing out the contradiction. And then in a culture with temples and idols and, and finicky gods that need humans to serve them, he says, you know, there's a God who created all the world that doesn't live in temples and isn't served by human hands, and doesn't need anything from these humans, and can't be represented by images. Again, this kind of calm critique that can cause someone to lean in and listen closer. I may not know everything about everything, And so he walks around, he looks, he sees this, and he makes these claims. So a critique is not an attack, but it is finding those inconsistencies. Um, There's this artist named Makoto Fujimura, and this artist calls this culture care instead of a culture war. There's lots of Christians throughout the last several decades that have been on a culture war. Uh, And this artist says, culture care is an act of generosity to our neighbors and our culture. Culture care is to see the world not as a battle zone where we're all vying for the limited resources, but the world as an abundance of possibility and promise. He says it's practicing resurrection and a spirit-filled life in a culture that doesn't know it. So what can I compliment? What can I critique? 
And then when I do speak, let's speak how Paul spoke. First, he spoke objectively, and then he spoke subjectively. Objectively, he takes his faith, again, into this world of business, into this world of of philosophy, into this world that's not really religious, and he talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now think about that. We see it in this story But we also see it when he's going against two powerful political leaders named Agrippa and Festus. And if you're like, ooh, those are fun names. They are fun. King Agrippa is the ruler of Jerusalem. He's actually the grandson of King Herod, Herod Agrippa. And then Festus is the next governor of Rome. I think it goes Pilate, then Felix, then Festus. Maybe there was one in between. But these are the people that were in the power places when Jesus was killed. And now they're go- Paul is going up and he's being interviewed, interviewed by them because he's been in jail for two years. And he explains about his story. He explains and connects to the Jewish faith. And then he brings up the resurrection of the dead. And Festus says he's out of his mind. And here's what he says in Acts 26, 26. The king, King Agrippa, is familiar with all these things. He practices Judaism. He was around when Jesus lived. He was around when Jesus was crucified. In fact, I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. Paul connects his faith, to real events in history that are verifiable, that are debatable. And even even the critics of Jesus Christ don't deny that he lived. They, They don't deny that he died. And hundreds of people claim to have seen him after he rose from the dead. His closest followers not only claimed to see him after he rose from the dead, but died believing that, never denying it. You can go to the Middle East today and you can visit the paths that Jesus walked. You can see the towns that he traveled through. You can, you can go on the lake that he rode on. There is, uh, I'm pretty sure this, um, that history and even though, even, here it is, even though the Bible is not a history or a science book, history and science have never contradicted scripture. This is an incredibly vulnerable way to bring your faith in to your life. No other religion does this. Most other religions say, Think good thoughts, work hard, and you'll have inner peace. You'll, you'll feel good. Christianity, you know, could say that, but instead starts with this objectivity that people can argue or seek and prove. Some people call it apologetics. That might be a word that's not being used very often anymore, but it's, it's the reminder to the reality of the re- resurrection in my mind, is this reminder that the church is not a business. It's, it's not a building. It's not a social club. It's a people 
that continue to proclaim in the midst of pain and suffering in the world that there is good news. That's what the resurrection does. That no matter where we are in history or where we are personally, the fact that Jesus rose from the dead gives us hope that God isn't finished with the pain and the suffering in the world. I think one of the ways that we can grow in our ability to share our faith more objectively, I I know this might sound a little cheesy, it's just well-timed, is to read the Bible together. So next week, actually this week, we're going to all start reading, or you're invited to, to join us in reading through this Immerse Bible that I forgot to bring up. But Right? I know. Do that six more times, it might count as a workout. So this is a, this is a family guide, um, and this one is excerpts of the 40 days of reading. If you have small children or young teens that you just know, there is no way that they're going to read through the whole New Testament. Uh, this is a great alternative, but we really encourage you to go for the real deal, the full, the full Immerse Bible, Messiah, it's the New Testament. You read 10 pages a day this week, and you will finish the entire book of Luke. Okay, in five days. So five days out of seven. So that means you have two like cheat days or spread it out days or oops, I forgot days. Um, And then the next week, you read five more, like 10 more pages a day, five more times. You'll have the entire book of Acts read. And you'll get all this context to the story that we're talking about. It's this way that we read big and we suddenly realize these themes that never come out when we take these little tiny chunks. It helps us know the story because that's what Paul did. He knew the story. Then it helps us find ourselves in the story. Paul was able to go, okay, so these people are not Jewish. I'm not going to start with Abraham. I'm not going to talk about Moses. I'm not going to do any of that. I'm going to talk about the God who created everything. I'll just go back to the very beginning. I'll talk about that. And then I'll talk about, and I'll fast forward in the story and talk about how God is, is actually very close to us. But it helps us know the story, find ourselves in the story, and share the story. So that's why I'm so excited about Immerse. Why, um, if you don't have a group to go through yet, we have a list of groups. Uh, Kira will talk to you. Anybody on our staff would talk to you, help you find a way to get into a group, even if it's just for that season, to process that together, to encourage each other in those readings. And again, I think it helps us with this objective side of the frame. All right, lastly, uh, Paul helps us, Paul shared the good news of Jesus subjectively. Meaning, Paul spoke personally and passionately about this God that he knows And he loves, and he knows, loves the people that he's talking to. I mean, he opens the invitation just as wide as he can and uses their own artists, as even some of your own poets have said. For him to say that, he would have had to know what the poet said. He would have had to read them. He would have had to study their culture. Even your own poets have said, we are God's offspring. And actually, offspring 
is this word family. And I think when we look at offspring, we kind of take it to this impersonal family, like that cousin that you really never talk to. But he's saying to this people who worship all these other gods, we are his family. And he goes on to say, God did this so that we would seek him and perhaps reach out and find him, though he's not far away from any of us. If, if you're someone who doesn't know Jesus or has trouble saying, oh, I trust you as my Lord, as my leader, as my Savior, would you consider that even if you're keeping him at an arm's length from you, that he's, he's right there at the end of your arm. He's giving you that distance because he respects you, but he's not far away. And he wants to be close. Not to control you, but to be in a relationship with you. This is what I think Paul is doing in the midst of this conversation with a people in a new place, in a new time. Because I think Paul is doing what most of us want to do, but sometimes don't know how to do. But it's actually what the people who are skeptical or cynical or maybe even seeking are waiting for. And that's a genuine experience with Jesus. Because we have to experience Jesus. This objectivity, this objective truth that Jesus lived, that he died, that he rose again, actually causes all other religions to just kind of crumble in comparison. But the subjective, the personal experience with Jesus is what transforms us. It's what causes us to leave those other gods, those other idols, and run to him and replace him and never need those other things in the way that we did before. See, I don't think we're that different from the people of Paul's day. These Athenians that worshipped all these different gods, whether it was Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty, or Apollos, the god of music, or even Bacchus, the goddess of wine and celebration, each of these specific gods were for the little segments of these people's lives. And if you like to keep all the little pieces of your life separate, your home life, your work life, your friend life, your school life, your sports friends, your work friends, your church friends, like all separate, then you might have more Athenian in you than you think. And I think Paul is offering you something today. And these Epicureans, these were people that believed there was no connection between the, the people and the divine. And there was only the physical reality of the present. And so they just attempted to free people from this idea of the gods or life after death or even the fear of death. And instead just seek contentment and satisfaction and avoid pain. Kind of sounds like the average American, doesn't it? Holy Spirit has something for us in that. And then these Stoics, these people who accepted God in theory, 
but were really skeptical about life after death, who put logic and reasoning above every other sense, these people might be the intellectual skeptics of our day, the people we work with, talk with, live with, maybe even would say, you know, I'm probably one of those people. I think we all have a skeptic or a cynic or a seeker in our midst. Someone that might be like, ah, maybe there's more seeking information, or someone who says, I, I do need more. I know that I don't know everything and that I'm open to something, and they're waiting for you and for me to share. And I hope this framework gives you creativity and freedom to share. I mean, ultimately, subjectively, God wants you to share your relationship about Jesus and with Jesus in a way that makes sense in your life. It doesn't have to look the same. It shouldn't be a formula. It should be just you and something that is attractive to whoever your marketplace is. So just as we close, um, Van's going to come up in a minute, but there's two ways that I found this week that I think um, demonstrate this. So the first is you can use your camera because a bunch of us have those. They're usually attached to a phone. But here's um, a photographer named Eric Pickerskill, um, and he created this gallery called Removed. Maybe some of you saw the first image or couple images online, but he took a series of photos to spotlight how we're increasingly sucked into our screens that we carry around. Even in the company of friends and family. I mean, look at this. He sets up the shots that people, like these are natural poses that people do. It's just that they have a phone in their hand and we think it looks increasingly normal. And he wants to point out that it doesn't look normal, that it's super awkward. And it increases disconnection and distance. And so he sets up all the shots, has the subject remove their phones or their devices, so they just are staring at this empty space between their hands. And they're missing the beautiful surroundings and the human connection that are around them. I think he saw the hunched-over, phone-absorbed pose that's becoming increasingly normal, and he felt the loneliness and the distractedness and the disconnectedness, and he decided to do something about it. He saw, he felt, and he did. And I think it's pretty beautiful. I think regardless of where someone's face at, this is a conversation starter. You do it in a way that makes sense to you. It's creative, it's engaging, it brings up our culture's value of connection and beauty in a way that could lead to the good news of Jesus. All right, the second one is um, through music. Uh, and just like Paul looked carefully around at the culture and then he prayed fervently for the Spirit to show him truth, he prayed that he could speak it in a language that the people would understand. And I think music is a language people would understand. This is a song that's written um, in the last 10 years, but I think it was 2010. Um, it's called The Cave, and it, it poignantly 
shows the superficiality, superficiality and addictions of our age. I just want you to listen to the opening minute of this song. The song goes on to say, So come out of your cave, walking on your hands, and see the world hanging upside down. You can understand dependence when you know the maker's heart. See, neither of these artists are explicitly Christian. Uh, Pretty sure Mumford and Sons was on Saturday Night Live at some point. But again, it's what the language of our culture. And we need to know it. We don't need to love it, but we need to be able to speak it. And there was this huge discussion online about, about this song and what it might mean. I think that it shows us a human who's decided to walk away with some fear and doubt, but determination. Walk away from the superficial things and the addictive things that he or she has accumulated in their life in order to find something of real substance. That's something that people would want. That's something that the people that you know and love that don't know Jesus could connect with. It's dependence on our maker, not being prideful in what we have or what we obtain, but understanding and submitting to his will that enables us in some ironic way to be set free, to be born again. This is the good news in a new language. Because the resurrected Lord Jesus has not called us to some idyllic promised land where we just hope that people will come in and join our tribe. He sends us out to bring hope to all kinds of broken people and broken places. And he says, you can do it in engaging, creative ways. Yes, you can compliment. Yes, you can critique. You can do it subjectively or objectively, but you can do it in ways that I have already created you to do. So I pray that we would be people who do it. And if you don't know where to start, I encourage you to join one of our ministry teams because no matter where you serve, when you serve, you find out more about who God has already made you to be and what your passions and gifts might be. And if you don't know, even if you can do that, um, please contact one of our staff. We'd love to sit down with you and, and hear your story of how God has worked in your life and where he might want to use you in the future. So would you pray with me? God, I believe that you do want us to get going into the world, into our marketplaces, to see the idols and to feel something but to stop and talk to you about how we are supposed to feel. God, that, that we wouldn't just have disdain for things we don't understand or don't like, but that we would have a heart that is in line with you. God, that you would break our hearts for what breaks your heart. And then as we see those things and feel those things, that we would move out with purpose and intention and creativity in a language that's attractive and translatable. 
God, as we start reading your word with more intention and, and probably more effort, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would just give us understanding and insight. Uh, and above all, God, a deeper love for you. Speak to us about where our idols might be, where we might be missing the mark. Show us your grace and your truth. Amen.